death and his resurrection. Uh, they argue over who's the greatest. Uh, and um, he tells us uh, what we need to do to be a disciples. So um, I'm, I'm breaking it up based on deficiencies in, in the disciples. So they're doing a bunch of amazing things, but amazingly, they're doing a bunch of things wrong. And I don't want to focus, I'm not here to focus on them necessarily, but I think it's going to be, I'm, going to, I'm hoping it'll be educational for all of us that we can look at ourselves through the disciples and see how we can improve. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we just want to stop and recognize that you are all-powerful and all-knowing and omnipresent, Lord, that you are on the throne in control, and uh, Lord, that you've paid the ultimate price by sending your Son, Lord, that we can have the hope of heaven through his, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection, Lord, and we thank you for that. That's why we're here tonight, Lord, to uh, serve you, to honor you, and uh, to become better disciples, Lord, uh, I ask that you would uh, move me out of the way and that your word would be proclaimed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Starting in uh, Luke uh, nine forty-one, Jesus answered, O faith, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Then it says, bring, bring your son here. So he, he, this is right after they come down from the mountain. And so there's the, the three, Peter, James, and John, were with Jesus. So the, the nine were just trying to minister and doing their own thing. This, this father comes with his only son and asks him to, to cast out the demon, and they can't. And so the father comes to Jesus and says, hey, your disciples can't do this. Can you do this? And, um, and then he says this. He says, oh, faith, faithless and twisted generation. And, you know, I've read this many times, but as I was studying this, he's actually talking to the disciples here. He's like, you guys don't get it. And so uh, that's, where I'm, that's what I'm here to tell you is that you guys don't get it. I don't get it. So Jesus was, was talking to the, to the apostles here. He, was, he had given them the power and the authority to do this, right? Um, but they were lacking faith. They were continually missing the point. They were acting on the wrong motives. So what caused them to be so off? Like, what, what was going on? We're going we're gonna to dig into that. And so then uh, the equivalent question I asked to you guys, what causes us to be so off? What causes us to have the wrong motives? <clears throat> so we're going to look at what's lacking in his followers uh, back then, and then hopefully point it to us. So we're going to go over four of them. Lack of love, lack of power, lack of discipline, and lack of urgency. So uh, we'll start back in verse 1 now. It, the passage starts off promising enough. He, and he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do, not take, and do not have two tunics. 
And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. We're going to skip to verse 10 because the, the Herod stuff is, is a distraction. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So the apostles return and they're successful in their ministry and in their spreading the gospel and in healing. They were commissioned and sent out by Jesus and had returned to, to recount everything that they had done. Uh, stories of how they'd healed people, stories of how they'd spread and proclaimed the gospel, how people had believed. And uh, doubtless there were also stories of people who didn't believe and they had stories of, of uh, shaking the dust off as they left that village and that village. Um, I'm sure they were excited and energized um, as they recounted the stories, I remember when we when we get back when we got back from Mexico when we get back from Haiti, that group is just on fire, right? They're just, what about this? And do you remember this? And there was that person, and so they're going through they're going through all of that right now, and uh, seeing how God moved and how God was God allowed them to be used for the work of the kingdom. But this kind of ministry can also be wearying. It can be tiresome. It can be exhausting, and so. It's crucial that, you know, they take time away. And so Jesus instructs them, instructs the apostles exactly this in Mark 6.31. So, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they get back and they're still just being mobbed by people. And they don't even have time to eat. So Jesus takes them and, and they leave. And their ministry, so um, so that you know, rest, recharge, uh, try to get just some time. Uh, but it doesn't last long. So uh, Luke nine eleven, when the crowds have learned it, they followed him and they welcomed them, and he welcomed them. So Jesus is like, hey, come on, let's 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 heal you, let's let's preach. Um, so he he welcomed them and spoke to the kingdom of God and cured those who were needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are at a desolate place. So first comes up uh, lack of power. Luke doesn't tell us how long the apostles, how much time they got to rest, but I'm imagining it isn't long, judging by the fact that the crowds just kind of followed them out to the desolate place. So the crowd found them and flocked to Jesus, and he's welcoming them. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's healing those who need healing. And um, so the disciples are right back at it, ministering. And then they realize they're in the middle of nowhere, and it's getting late, and, and these people haven't eaten in hours. They haven't eaten in hours. And so they ask Jesus, like, okay, it's time to turn off the lights. We need to go, right? We need to send them away so they can find food. They need to fend for themselves. And I can imagine the disciples are, are tired, right? So we don't, we don't want to give them a completely bad rap here. But um, they're hungry. They see no way that they can help these people. And so as they watch Jesus minister and perform miracles, they still don't understand who they're with. They don't understand the power they have available, you know, right there. Their leader, their master, their Messiah. Um, 
And he has the power to meet all of these people's needs. And I'm reminding you, he has the power to meet all of our needs. Luke 9, 13. And he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food uh, for all these people. So he's, he's asking them to act, right? So Jesus has got all the power, but he's acting, asking us to act. He's asking the disciples to act. And so before we ask God to do the impossible, he wants us to start with the possible. Give him what we have. What is available right here that we can offer? Uh, when, we, when we see problems, we need to look at them as opportunities for God to work. But he needs us, and he's waiting for us to also move. Um, we need to give him all we have and then trust that he's going to meet the needs. Continuing on in 14. For there were about 5,000 men, he said to this, and he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down and taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, saying a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets, so one per disciple of the broken pieces. So in those crisis hours when we think things are falling apart, um, when our resources are low, uh, when our responsibilities and our needs are significant, we need to remember that God has already solved the problem. So we don't know the solution, but he already has the plan. And we can tap into that power. Um, in times of need, uh, in our moments of doubt, we need to remember the nature and character of God we serve, that he has incredible power, and that that's at our disposal. Jesus was right there, right? He was there in the midst. He was healing, he was performing miracles, uh, but the disciples weren't connecting the dots, right? He's, he's immediately, I mean, he's doing the miracles right then, and they're like, but we're hungry. So they, they, they were missing, they were missing Jesus, right? They're missing the power that they had uh, right there next to them. So the question is, how often are we like that? How often do we see the reality of our situation? And we see the need, we feel the gap, but do we have the faith to just rest in God? Do we have the faith to know he has already solved the problem and provided the solution? I'll leave that for you to answer. Moving on to uh, verse 37. So on the next day when they came came down from the mountain, a great, crowd, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And then here's the verse again, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I with you and bear with you? He's just amazed um, that they're, you know, he's getting, he's, he's on the way to Jerusalem right now. You know, he's, he's not got much time left, and they don't get it yet. Anyway, let me continue. 
Uh, he, so he says, bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And then all were astonished at the majesty of God. So after returning from this uh, healing mission, the disciples attempted to cast out the spirit and could not. Some of the dangers of coming down from that awesome mountaintop experience is we, we have a tendency to kind of let off the gas and rest on our victory, take a breath. We've done what we, we, we did what we set out to do and we just kind of uh, stop pushing forward. And we need to realize that after every victory, you can expect an attack. And the disciples, were, they, were, they were neither prepared, uh, and it looked like they had, they had stopped uh, their prayer, and they'd stopped their fasting, and their faith had dwindled to the point where, even though they were casting out demons days ago, it, it, they could no longer do it. So the, the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out the Spirit, and, and Jesus provides the answer in Mark 29, 9.29. And so he said to them, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. So were the disciples taking a pause? Were they resting from their recent victory? Were they neglecting their daily prayer life to the point that they lacked the power to remove the Spirit? Um, we can't... We, for us, we need a reminder, we can't live on past victories. We must constantly be looking for what God has us to do today, what God has in front of us, the good works that he has appointed, and that we continue to walk out in. Can't, there's, no, there's no breaks. We're still, the disciples lack the power. Uh, because of the disciples lack the power, they started to cause this father to doubt, right? So he's like, what's up? These disciples who were healing are no, no longer healing. And so that puts doubt on, on Jesus and on the whole crew. And again, I want to put that back on me and on you. Our lives and how they impact and the faith that we exhibit, how is that affecting the people around us, both the believers and the non-believers? Are you the person who, when they, somebody sees you and sees your faith and sees you walking out, that it encourages them and makes them to try harder? Or are you the person who's uh, just like, hey, well, I, I didn't get it to it today, and maybe, and then you start seeing, you know, you're portraying that, and how is that affecting the people around you? And how is that affecting people who are unbelievers? As you tell them you're a believer, and yet you're walking however uh, that isn't reflecting what God has in, in mind for you. So we just need to remember that. Um, do we ask? Uh, do we ask from men what we should be asking from God? Is our faith weakened because we have looked too much at Jesus's followers instead of looking at Jesus? And uh, don't use that as an excuse, right? Oh well, they're not doing it right, and they're not doing it right. And look at that one. Look at that one. Um, just joking. Look at Jesus. Jesus gave us the example. We don't have to compare ourselves to others. We don't have to uh, use others as an excuse for our lack of faith and power and service. Uh, we need to remember where our power comes from and then return to the source. And so a disciple is a person who, whose trust is fixed in Jesus and who brings every need to him and not to others, just 
God, help me fix this. So they lack the power for all those things. And so my question to you is, uh, how can we improve? How can we tap into the power that God has given each one of us? Moving on, uh, disciples also lacked love. And so we're going to start in, in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reason in their hearts, took a child and put it, put it by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For, who, for he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. So the disciples demonstrate a severe lack of love for each other, each other in the twelve. They're arguing about who's the greatest, uh, and we can wonder why. There's a lot going on right here. Peter and James and John had just come down from being like the chosen, and are, was there a jealousy going on there? Um, the other nine were, were down uh, from the mountain, and they couldn't cast out the demon, and so they're insecure, and all this stuff going on. It doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say, but they, the Bible does say they were arguing about who was the greatest, and so why was that? And we know that that, that is not, that is not uh, an example of a disciple. Um, so whatever the reason, uh, they're now arguing over who's the greatest, and then Jesus needs to set him straight. So he takes this child and says it next to him. And says that, uh, for he who is least among you all, is the one who is great. And so he's using the child as the example of greatness here. And so what, what about a child? Um, they're helpless. They're dependent. They're without any status. And they're living by faith. And so that's what he's saying we need in order to be great. So let's turn the focus to ourselves. Are we arguing about who's the greatest? Are we jockeying for position at work, at church, in life? Uh, are we too busy with the concerns to care about others? Are we so focused on comparing others, to comparing ourselves to others around us that we can't find space to love one another? So it's, there's a danger when we look around at others instead of just focusing on Jesus. Um, and there's two ways it can go. Firstly, you can look at others and feel like you don't measure up, and then you're just downhearted, and then you stop trying. Uh, I don't think most of us are in that, that category, but maybe. Worst, I think, is that you look around and you're, you're like, I'm doing better than him, doing better than him. I think I'm doing all right. If you, you know, average it out, I'm doing all right. And uh, then you, you're, you're, you're not doing what God has told you to do. You're not doing what the Bible says is your, this is the standard. You're just looking around and going, hmm, I'm doing all right. I can get by. So got to knock out all the comparison. Keep it on the standard, what God has told you to do. What, what does the word say we need to be doing as disciples? And none of us measure up. Newsflash. <laughs> none of us measure up. We can all do better. Um, I was supposed to. I was going to do a disclaimer at the beginning. 
but I'll do it now because I'm feeling hypocritical. Um, this is what the word says. This doesn't mean that I'm, I'm a model of any of this, but as I was going through it uh, before I actually wrote this, it spoke to me. It encouraged me. I'm trying to encourage you, so I'm not saying I have any of this down. I'm just saying this is what the word says. Disclaimer. Okay, done with disclaimer. Let's move on. Uh, let's move on uh, talking about love to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you guys don't have to turn there. It should be up there. Um, if you speak, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So this is, this is the example of love that we have as the standard. So I'm just uh, encouraging each other um, we're humans, and uh, we're flawed and broken. And when we interact with each other, things happen. So you, you're at church, and you're like, did that brother just say what I think he said? Who does he think he is? Is that sister, did that sister just give me the side eye as I walked by? I knew she had something against me. We're called to love one another. Do you think somebody has wronged you or insulted you? Go to that person. Matthew 18. Ask for clarification. Did you really mean what I think you said? Um, I, what comes out of my mouth rarely is what I intend to say. Just saying. Including up here. Right, hon? That's not what I meant. So give people the benefit of the doubt. Believe the best in the other person and their intentions. You looked at me. You look like you're displeased. Is there something wrong? Have I done something to you? Communicate. Love one another. Is there a rebuke or a reproof you need to receive? Is this thing you're hearing unwanted but true? By all means, receive it with humility and respect. If what you're receiving, actually they are trying to harm me. Wow, this is hurtful and they're just mean. Okay, that's where endures all things comes in. You're still called to love them, even if they're intending harm, because that's the standard. We've each received an immeasurable amount of grace. We will be judged by the forgiveness we extend uh, to others, because we're acknowledging the forgiveness that we've received through the work that Jesus did on the cross. So there's no place to stand in there and say, oh, they have wronged me. They have wronged me and I cannot forgive them. There's no place for that. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never ends. Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So we, as a group of believers, as this church, as Christians in general, we should be able to declare to the world by the way we love each other, in a way that's peculiar and inhuman, right? It's, it's something that no one else should be able to explain except that we are followers of Jesus and we love one another. Our love should, for one another should stand out as uncommon and it should be a Holy Spirit-empowered love that you can find nowhere else. There's just no other way to explain it. And that's, what, that's how we declare to the world how important Jesus is to us and how important Jesus should be to the unbeliever. So we all have a lot of work to do on there. Me too. Moving on. Since the disciples couldn't even get along with each other, I'm sure it's not going to be a surprise to you that they didn't get along with other groups and other believers. So picking up in 49. John answered them, and this is John, Peter, James, and John, one of the uh, inner circle. Master, we saw another, as we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not, he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So here we are, you know, we have our group, and there are other groups, um, and this group was actually casting out demons, so they had some power and some authority, and so maybe they were jealous. It's hard to say. I'm not going to read more into it than the word says, but John definitely wanted it stopped, and maybe he's looking out for Jesus in his name, but Jesus wasn't worried about it. Um, others may not approach ministry the way we do. Um, they may do it differently. We may disagree on the, the details, um, but if they're preaching and teaching a biblical Jesus, the same biblical Jesus we believe in, they're on our side at some point. And we should, Jesus taught them, taught us, taught his disciples that they needed to have a more generous spirit and uh, to be open. We don't have to be arm in arm with people we disagree with as far as process, but that doesn't mean that we can't uh, recognize that they're also part of the kingdom and doing kingdom work. The disciples also demonstrate a lack of love for their enemies. So let's continue in 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he set messengers ahead of him, who went, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So James and John, the other, you know, two of the, two of the three, uh, their nickname was Sons of Thunder, and so that could be for lots of reasons. Um, but they were, they were out there, and they'd just seen Elijah up on the mountain, and so they had to have in their mind all of Elijah's success and they're like 
I know what, let's call down fire from heaven like Elijah does. And this is going to please the Lord, right? So he's, they're showing the righteous indignation about how dare the Samaritans not receive us. Um, but Jesus isn't having any of it. It wasn't part of the plan anyway for them to stop there, it says. Um, so uh, so they, don't, they don't have a love. The bottom line is they don't have a love for for their enemies, in this case, the Samaritans. Uh, Luke 6, 27 and 28 says, But I say to you, you who hear, and I think it's interesting the way that says, say to you, you who hear. So if you're not listening, you're not hearing. It doesn't look like these disciples were listening or hearing. But for those who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. They, this is Luke 6. We're in Luke 9. So they just heard Jesus say this within a week or two. So it, it, it should have been present in their mind, and yet it's not. And so I find some encouragement that you know, the apostles have been with Jesus for almost three years at this point because you know, it's almost done. And they still are struggling with how, struggling with trying to love the way Jesus has called us to love. But that doesn't get us off the hook, right? So, oh, the disciples, didn't, the disciples couldn't do it. Why should I try? So that's back to, you know, uh, number one. If they couldn't do it, I'm not going to do it. But that's, we're not off the hook here. We're still going to be held to the standard. 1 Corinthians 13, all of it. We're going to be held to that standard. So we're called to love our enemies, and we can't do that on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. We need power indwelt in us to be able to forgive, to be able to uh, love uh, the unlovable. And so we need, uh, we need to ask for help. We need to ask for the power, and we need to ask for the love from the Lord in order to accomplish that. Moving on to lack of discipline. So we recovered, we've covered lack of power. We've covered lack of love. Uh, and uh, we're going to pick up in, we're going up to verse 27 now. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And what he meant by that is, you know, Peter, James, and John, we're going to see him transfigured. So um, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So Jesus takes the three of them up. Um, these are his chosen ones up to the mountain to pray. So this is supposed to be, like, this is going to be an intimate time with your Savior, your Messiah. And, and you're one of three. And you're sleeping instead of praying. I don't know if this was a supernatural, like, they were put to sleep. It doesn't say that. But they were sleeping instead of praying. They would again have the same lapse multiple times in the Garden of Gethsemane, where they're supposed to be praying and they fall asleep. 
So I don't think it's a supernatural sleep. I think they were just tired and missing the point. So groggy from sleep, they wake up, they see Jesus, and he's transfigured, and they see that you see his transfigured appearance, and Peter doesn't know what to say, and so we continue on in 33. And as the men were parting from him, so uh, Moses and Elijah are parting from Jesus, Peter says to, said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So he's just spouting off, foot in the mouth. As he, was, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything what they had seen. So they were sleeping when they should have been praying, and now Peter's talking when he should have been listening and observing. To the point where God the Father is like, hey, zip it. Listen to my son. So I guess the question is, do you see yourself in this? What can we learn about ourselves from this? Because, you know, we bag on Peter a lot for a lot of things, but he's not there for us to bag on. He's there because he's like us. And so I'm asking you, what can you learn from Peter about yourself? Are we sleeping when we should be praying? Are we talking when we should be listening? What about our walk isn't aligning with the priorities we know each of us knows God has given us and set out for us. In the following two passages, Jesus lays out um, what he's looking for from a disciple. So let's, let's continue with those. Uh, Luke nine twenty three, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So that's, you know, we've, we've heard this. This is familiar territory. But it's also a huge and high standard, right? And I think we all have m much room to, one, be reminded of it and to figure out what the next step is to get closer to this standard. Uh, let's continue uh, in the other passage, uh, 957. So we're skipping on down uh, to the end. As, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had no home. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. A disciplined life is a life of surrender and sacrifice. We need to surrender our desires. We need to sacrifice our plans for his plans. In practical terms, sacrificing that additional hour of sleep to spend time in God's word, spend time on your knees in prayer, talking to him. Surrender that night at home, and it doesn't apply to us because we're here, Surrendering that night at home to be together with his people at church or at some ministry opportunity. This one hurts for me because I'm terrible at I'm terrible at this. Sacrificing our comfort and security to reach out to someone to tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the power. Tell them about how they need to be saved. That requires sacrifice of all of our comfort zone and bravery to step out. So the life of a disciple requires surrendering our time and our energy and our finances for the kingdom of God. So I'm just challenging it there too. And me. Moving on to the last one. Uh, lack of urgency. So there's two final chapters or two passages we haven't covered yet. And Jesus is foretelling of his soon coming persecution where he gets handed over and his death and his resurrection. So that's starting in 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised and it doesn't it doesn't say anywhere that the disciples are they're confused but they're not doing anything about it they're not they're not working on their love they're not working on their power they're not working on being disciples they're not they're just still arguing because they argue right after this um then moving on to 43 but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. He's like, guys, pay attention. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So we have to give them slight benefit here because it does say it was concealed so they were in this case they were supernaturally kind of prevented from understanding it but they understood it enough to know they were afraid to ask about it so they still heard what he said but they had no understanding of what it meant he just told them that he was going to die and, and uh, be resurrected on the third day in, in verse 21 though and so if you combine all that I still see where the, the apostles are, have this huge lack of, of urgency. Like, I, let me talk to Jesus just one more time because I don't know how much time I have with him. 
there's nothing, there's, you don't get any of, of that feeling that there's this sense of it's going to end soon. And uh, you know, the apostles, you know, they're given this preview of the, the death and resurrection, and then they just seem unfazed. Um, their leader had just told them he's going to be handed over. He's going to die. Okay. So there's no urgency. So now it's, now it's our turn. Where's our urgency? We see what's going on around here. The times and the seasons, this is not normal. Are we still just going about with our lack here and our lack there? Or do we have a sense of urgency that it could end soon? Is there things we need to do? Are there things God told you to do? Well, are there? There are things God told you to do. And are you doing them? Are we ready to work on our lack of power and our love and our discipline and our urgency? Are we ready to work on all of those things we may be exhibiting? So I'll, I'll leave you with that. Are we ready? The final question. Are we ready to pick up our cross like Jesus asked us to and to follow him? Pick it up daily and follow him. That. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, your standard is very high and we are unworthy servants. I ask that you would give us the strength we don't have. Give us the love we don't have. Give us the discipline we don't have. Lord, that you would fill the gaps. Lord, that you would use this group, that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to do the things we can't do in our own strength. Lord, that you would make your word come alive as we faithfully read it. Lord, that you would give us the courage to walk out the good works you've set before each of us. Lord, that you would uh, supply every need and solve every problem, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.